Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, this coming August 9th will mark the two-year anniversary of the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Brown was shot multiple times by police officer Darren Wilson. His death set off a series of protests and a national discussion that continues today. Wilson was not indicted. A grand jury found he was justified in shooting Brown in self-defense. Reverend Starsky Wilson was a co-chair of a commission created by the governor of Missouri to study the aftermath of the events in Ferguson. Its charge was, quote, to address the underlying root causes that led to the unrest in the wake of Michael Brown's death and to publish an unflinching report with transformative policy recommendations for making the region stronger and a better place for everyone to live." Unquote. This talk addresses how that commission succeeded and failed in its recommendations, how to unravel community fabrics created in large part to promote segregation, and how to get to the root causes of inequity and injustice. It speaks to national issues that impact Seattle. Last year, Mayor Ed Murray marked the release of a report on housing affordability and livability with these comments, quote, We are dealing not just with the national crisis of income inequality in our city. In Seattle, we're also dealing with a pretty horrific history of zoning based on race, and there's residue of that still in place, unquote. Reverend Starsky Wilson is the pastor of St. John's Church in St. Louis, Missouri, and the president and CEO of the Deaconess Foundation. He spoke with Karen Toring of the Social Justice Fund Northwest at Seattle Public Library's Central Library on June 7th. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, Sherry Brady of the Aspen Institute introduces the program. Good evening, and thank you for joining us this, after, this evening, I guess it is, right? It's still sunny out. This is, that doesn't happen in D.C. where I'm from. I'm like, what's going on at the time? So I'm a little confused. I'm Sherry Brady from the Aspen Institute, from the Forum for Community Solutions, and um, I am delighted to introduce our guest tonight. This event is brought to you, as was said, by the Seattle Public Library and the Collective Impact Forum. I represent the Collective Impact Forum, which is a project of the, of the Aspen Institute and FSG to really think about how you provide resources and a community platform for those using the collective impact approach to work on complex social issues, ranging from homelessness to ending homelessness to supporting veterans to building sustainable career pathways for opportunity youth. Um, the world today is really filled with deeply complex problems that seem insurmountable when you work with them, when you look at them on your own. But by working together, we can really work to overcome them. This includes having discussions like the important one we're having tonight and really thinking about why it's important to talk about racial equity and why it's important to authentically engage communities in working toward equitable change for their lives. Um, I am honored to welcome and introduce our guests, Reverend Starsky Wilson and Karen Toring, who will be discussing what we can learn from what happened in, Missouri, in Ferguson, Missouri, following the tragic death of Michael Brown Jr. in, 19, in 2014. Thank you both for joining us tonight. <clears throat> So, Reverend Wilson and Ken, would you come up? And then I'll just give you a little bit of background on the both of them. Reverend Wilson is a pastor, philanthropist, and activist who serves as president and CEO of the Deaconess Foundation, 
pastor of St. John's Church, the beloved community, and co-chair of the Ferguson Commission. The Deaconess Foundation is a faith-based grant-making organization devoted to making child well-being a civic priority in the St. Louis region. Through St. John's Church, Reverend Wilson has led congregational activism on a myriad of issues, including youth violence prevention, Medicaid, prevent Medicaid expansion, public school accreditation, voter mobilization, capping payday lending, and raising the minimum wage. In 2014, Missouri Governor Jay Nixon appointed Reverend Wilson to co-chair the Ferguson Commission, which was charged to study the underlying conditions and make public policy recommendations to help the region through issues exposed by the death of Michael Brown, Jr. In September of 2015, the commission released the groundbreaking report, Forward Through Ferguson, A Path Toward Racial Equity, calling for sweeping changes in, pol in policing, the courts, child well-being, and economic mobility. Along with us is Karen Turing, who will be moderating tonight's discussion. Karen is Senior Project Manager for Social Justice Fund Northwest here in Seattle. Social Justice Fund Northwest is a foundation that supports social justice organizing in five states in the Northwest region. Her background as an organizer, cultural worker, and consultant for nonprofit arts and social justice organizations is born out of her passion for connecting people to ideas and action. Her work includes base building and collaboration on media justice and media policy initiatives through her work on the ground and on the boards of national media advocacy organizations, including the Media and Democracy, the, excuse me, including the Media and Democracy Coalition and the Alliance for Community Media in Washington, D.C., along with Reclaim the Media here in Seattle. She also serves as consulting producer for Seattle's Langston Hughes African American Film Festival and is the founder of the Gary International Black Film Festival in our hometown of Gary, Indiana. Before I turn this over to Karen to kick off the discussion, please join me in giving them a warm welcome. It is so nice, first of all, there are a lot of friendly faces in this audience, Reverend Wilson. Um, a lot of organizers, a lot of people that have been doing really, really amazing work on the ground, and I just want to acknowledge, you know, your presence here, that you're in this building, and uh, acknowledge also the ground on which we stand, which is Duwamish land. And uh, we stand on the shoulders of many, many great people who were strong enough to live and strong enough to survive, and we're really, really grateful to be in this space having this conversation tonight. So thank you all for being here, and let's thank our ancestors for making it possible for us to be here tonight. Ashe. So those are some pretty powerful images. Uh, and I think it's a good place for us to start is with our history, because that is how we pattern ourselves for the future. So why don't you bring us to this moment? Uh, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to share. Uh, again, my appreciation to the Collective Impact Forum, to the Seattle Public Library, uh, and to each and every one of you uh, for being here. Uh, I gotta thank Karen, because y'all don't know me, so you gotta be here because of her. <laughs> um, so, uh, so thank you very much. Um, uh, we come to this moment uh, and into this conversation uh, from St. Louis, and as we said, history, I didn't know I would go all the way here, but I'll go all the way here. Uh, 1917, East St. Louis race riots, um, one of the largest 1917. Race, uh, 1917. All right, here East we St. go. East St. Louis race riots. 
um, lead to a mass uh, exodus of African Americans from East St. Louis, Illinois into St. Louis. Uh, that also begins the trend that we see generation after generation uh, of white flight from the city of St. Louis into uh, areas uh, uh, that are north uh, and ultimately west uh, of St. Louis City. Uh, that um, kind of action, if you will, uh, from the uh, mass um, responses uh, to African Americans in East St. Louis uh, led also to uh, massacres of many African Americans and that, their flight into St. Louis. Um, I say this because around the same time, those folks who are coming into St. Louis and those who um, are, need to find themselves, uh, need to find a space in the place, that, that leads to the establishment of the Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis uh, to help them to adjust to the community, but it also leads to a unique policy happening. Um, we begin to have restrictive covenants made in neighborhoods uh, by people who decide, I will not damage this neighborhood by selling my house to one of those African Americans. Uh, so I will enter into relationship with my neighbors and say, uh, we will um, venture to embed within our deeds that these homes cannot be sold to those folks. That sounds uh, familiar. Yeah, that, We know about restrictive covenants. Yeah, yeah that's critically important. Uh, because once we get to Ferguson and begin to talk about the issues that we see in this small hamlet of 21,000 people within a metropolitan area of 2.8 million people, um, those same covenants were used to set up uh, neighborhoods outside of the city of St. Louis, but the boundaries began to be used to establish municipalities, chartered communities uh, that could then also restrict people from being in these places. Uh, the St. Louis metropolitan area has 91 municipalities and 2.8 million people. Um, in those 91 municipalities, there are 80 municipal courts, there are 57 police departments and 43 different fire districts of fire departments. Um, that is what uh, Professor Terry Jones called fragmentation by design. Uh, and that fragmentation causes for us, quite frankly, a culture of divisions and racialized segregation as well. So part of see in the St. Louis metropolitan community uh, is one, the only community that leads the nation in two unique categories um, that are indicators for racial segregation. The number of municipalities per 100,000 people and the number of school districts per 100,000 people. And the St. Louis metro area is number three in both categories, thus one of the most hyper-segregated places uh, in the nation. And so we come up to August 9th, 2014, uh, and we find an incident uh, between a young African-American and a police officer that falls in a line of American history. While we know, I know we won't talk about the event and the particulars thereof, it is helpful for us to recall that for the one last 100 years of American history, every nine to 10 years there has been an incident where an African-American has been shot by police and it leads to a community uprising. Lindsay Lupo in a book that I went to, to I'm a kind of a political science nerd, uh, and so uh, this is a political science thing, and I found myself in it, and I needed to ground myself and get some context for what the governor was asking me to do. Ms. Lupo studies movements. Studies right? movements, but also very specifically studies riot commissions. So um, her book, which is the most recent, more definitive work on riot commissions in America, is entitled Flack Catchers. Um, so when I saw that title, I felt highly comforted, right? Um, and what she notes is that these commissions, um, which come after these kinds of conflagrations, uh, are used 
in unique but very consistent ways. Uh, and so part of what you see in these images is our attempt to trouble and to create tension with what we learned about riot commissions. Number one, they're used to make it look like executives are doing something when they're not. Number two, they have a tendency to focus on economic and community development um, and forget about the responses to the actual people and their issues. Number three, they're used to process people's emotions and to help them to have a place to talk about, to vent things over a certain period of time until it goes away, to run out the clock and give people a piece, place to talk about their emotions without real uh, impact and change. And finally, they're historically underfunded um, so that they don't have enough time or money to get the work done that they're actually asked to do. Uh, and so one of the things that we uh, had to do was to be thoughtful about that and maybe even take some blows uh, for what kind of funding was required to put into this work. Uh, so what you see on the screen uh, is uh, a collection of images uh, from the course and time uh, immediately following uh, the shooting of Michael Brown, uh, early images from the uprising which began on August 10th, 2014, uh, and then a movement all the way through um, to the day of the announcement of the No True Bill in the Darren Wilson case. So the images that you see with flames or burnt out areas uh, are things that happen on the day of the announcement of the No True Bill. You see images from our commission meetings uh, that I hope uh, illustrate um, both the diversity of the meetings, but also the challenges that came up in those sessions. Uh, and you see the work we needed to do and had to do outside of the meetings um, to be consistent with our own sense of call and vocation, um, that this is our work, that the commission should be an organizing tool, uh, and that we had to be uh, wholly accountable to people on the ground. Um, the one thing, last thing I'll say, and I, I think I can say this with confidence, I forget all, but anything that's in the dark or at night, like this image right here, uh, was taken on my cell phone. Um, and I say that because the nighttime images are the action images, the nighttime images are the agitation images, and you just need to know that, like, there wasn't a reporter somewhere. Some of us were actually there. And so there's a requirement of proximity to engage this work with authenticity. Um, and so I'm, I'm just very clear to say that um, because it's easy from the outside to, uh, to suggest that this is a nice, clean way to do this work on the side of the governor. And uh, I, you know, well, I'll get into that later, but I think that's the history, that's how we come to this moment. And ultimately, it seems to me, I'm glad that the Collective Impact Forum is creating space for this conversation because what I believe it has led to and part of the work I said this earlier today that we owe to young people like Brittany Farrell and Tara Thompson and Tori Russell uh, and Tef Poe and battle rappers like T-Dub O who are doing organizing in our neighborhoods today and doing books and organizing book and breakfast programs with people across the country is that they kept our community in enough tension that everybody realized they had to respond. And so we're having a conversation in Seattle today about a commission that wouldn't have happened if they wouldn't have put their bodies on the line. And so I owe them that thanks and I owe them that love. Yeah, so tonight what we wanna do is basically talk about the commission, its work, and how you came to a collective resolution to do the work 
and recommendations. That's what we're hoping to, to actually take a look at and study, is the work of the commission. How do we come to a point where we recognize, uh, and, and the report says that this, this term a lot, in an unflinching way, the root causes of why this happened, and we put together not only just recommendations, but a path forward to a, the better world that we all want to have. So that's the, the, the subject and substance of the conversation that we hope to have today. And earlier, uh, you mentioned young people. You know, the youth are really the truth, aren't they? Yes. They will just make yes. you do things yes. that you may or may not necessarily be prepared to do. And I want you to, to speak to how, you know, the, the different ways that young people actually held this tension, as you said earlier, and literally made not only, you know, the, the, the greater metropolitan St. Louis take notice, but the whole world took notice. And that was the work of young people, yeah, right? Absolutely. It was absolutely their work. Um, and we also remember this is the work of ordinary folk in a neighborhood uh, in Ferguson and Canfield Green and the North Winds Apartments uh, whose lives were disrupted here. But one of the things I say about this narrative uh, that what happened on August 10th uh, ultimately um, was, a, was a reaction uh, to, I think, a visceral reality that people experience on August 9th, which uh, I talk about three groups of young people. Um, we had had sustained um, advocacy and organizing for the last couple of years around the Fight for 15 with the Show Me 15 campaign, fast food workers mm -hmm. uh, who are working for a higher wage uh, in, the, in not only the St. Louis metropolitan area, but throughout the state of Missouri. And some of those folks, like Rasheen Aldrich, uh, were some of the first people there to see Mike on the ground. Mm -hmm. I said they look up and they look across and they see people like Tory Russell. Tory Russell uh, had started school away. He grew up in Ferguson, started school away, came back, uh, was doing coaching a little kids in the neighborhood. Um, and Tory was one who knew the realities of the neighborhood and knew certain police officers in those apartment complexes you really didn't want to see coming. Right, So they were just the cats from the neighborhood. They were the organizers from the fast food workers campaign. And then there were people like Brittany Farrell and Alexis Templeton. Brittany Farrell uh, just graduated with her RN, just got board certified. She's one of the folks, uh, little, little one with a megaphone in her hand, uh, who is, um, uh, who's agitating and leading in chants uh, in a lot of these images. Uh, Brittany was a fourth year student at the University of Missouri St. Louis, which is just not very far from Ferguson. What, what happened, uh, I, I see her as one of those uh, who's done all the stuff we told them to do. Uh, went to school, got an education, was a single mom taking care of her baby Mackenzie. Uh, but what happened around Mike's body was that the cats from the neighborhood and the folks organizing for a high wage and the kids who were in school all looked up at each other and said, it really doesn't matter. This could be any of us, even all of us who checked all the boxes. And they recognized that they're the first, the first generation of Americans who won't do as well as their parents, even the ones who checked all the boxes. This ain't gonna work for us. And so what they did was they decided um, <laughs> at the call of Tory Russell, uh, so Tory's one of the founders of Hands Up United, uh, Tory told people that day, meet me tonight at the Ferguson Police Department where all black 
at eight o'clock, we're going to get some answers. Right? Tori makes the call. And they go there. And he goes in, goes into the police department. He's trying to talk to people. People are gathering out there. Some clergy end up coming. You know, you know how good, respectable clergy do. People are trying to get people to sign petitions and stuff, right? He's just there for some answers. He goes in and spends some time in there. He comes back out disappointed and dejected. And he says to people, come back tomorrow. And people are upset and they're disappointed. He said, look, we've been dealing with this for 400 years. I can't get all the answers in two hours. <laughs> and so it was that kind of commitment and energy that sustained them and creativity, quite frankly. They created, uh, I joked, uh, the appropriate sophisticated term is indigenously led activist groups. Uh, they were really just protest cliques. And they, and they operated like cliques, you know? So after, there was 10 of them one day, then there was three groups of three. And they had this name and then they had another hashtag because they were dealing with the reality of trauma because people were there out all night. And some of them were out all night because they didn't have no other place to be. Uh, at one point we ran into a group, there were 11 of them living in a one bedroom apartment, but they found each other in the movement. Alexis and Brittany found each other uh, behind tear gas and now they're married, revolutionary love popping up. Um, and so, and so, I mean, this reality where they created bonds uh, with one another, um, wrestled in tension with one another, and did all of this behind um, enemy lines, paying, pouring Maalox in one another's eyes. Uh, and the whole time, while they're doing this, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is calling on the president to start a commission around Ferguson with no reply, and then calling on the governor to start a commission around Ferguson with no reply, and then calling on the mayor and the county executive to start a commission to study these issues with no reply. So for 90 days with no governmental appropriate, governmentally appropriate response, they're holding the line, they're going to jail, they're taking rubber and wooden bullets, they're taking tear gas, they're pouring, pouring Maylocks in each other's eyes um, and milk and trying to figure out um, how they're gonna live and love each other uh, until somebody um, and be accountable to reply. each other being because nobody's being obviously yeah. nobody is being accountable to them yeah and it's important to say that some of these folks showed up in the commission work as well so let's not let's not discount them as protesters alone mm -hmm. and so some of these same activists turned organizers over time mm -hmm. became people who facilitated sessions in the ferguson commission public meetings uh, they became folks who organized and turned out young people to inform the process. Mm -hmm. They were reporting in this state bureaucratic entity uh, mm -hmm. to the public on things that young people were saying. Uh, so we need not discount them as one category or the other or see them as people um, who are just yelling uh, and not contributing to uh, creative conversation. Um, so they played all of these roles. They've sat and informed national funders about the work that they're doing and the work that they needed to support. They've said no to funding because they didn't trust it or said no because somebody else was better positioned to take it and sought to orient this work with a great uh, deal of integrity. So um, so they, had, they led when no one was leading. Uh, and some of us who were smart decided to follow. Right, right. And so uh, the other thing that I didn't mention is that this is not just a conversation between myself and Reverend Wilson. This is a conversation in this room, which is why that microphone is over there. So as folks have questions, I do want you to, you know, just come up and queue up to the microphone. 
Uh, it's easy to do, uh, and there's, there's no shame in asking questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. And we also know that Seattle, with, uh, with the Q&A, there's a lot of A and very little Q. We're, we're, <laughs> it sounds like St. Louis. It sounds like St. Louis. We are prepared for that, but we really do want it to be a community conversation. I am just here to kick off this conversation, but I, I truly invite each and every one of you, if you have a question, come on up here and let's get this conversation started. So I wanna, um, I wanna spend a minute actually, uh, oh, and I have uh, the Ferguson uh, Commission report uh, forward through Ferguson, it's about 200 and... 196 pages. 100, yeah, 196 pages. 196 so. pages, 189 policy calls to action, right. uh, organized into four different categories, racial equity, justice for all, youth at the center, and opportunities to thrive, mm -hmm. uh, with racial equity as the overriding framework. So let's talk about who finally made it to the table. Now here we have a history of commissions that were designed to do what? Run out the clock. Mm -hmm. I do believe, and I have read these 197 pages, uh, that this is, we are looking at something different. We are really looking at a model that could work. And I got my fingers crossed. I'm gonna ask you at the end of the conversation how it's working. But talk to me about who was at the table why they were at the table and how they got to the table. Because you, know you know what the saying is, right? If you're not at the table, you're what? On the menu. You on the menu. Yeah, yeah so it's really important to, um, to talk about who's at the table. So first, I almost didn't make it to the table. I don't know who put my name in, uh, but we should, I'll give a little bit of credit. So the governor opened up, he announced in October that he would, he would um, call this commission. He opened it to the community to apply to be a part of the commission. And there were applications from all over the country. Um, and there were somewhere about 350 applications, online process, people could apply. Uh, and then some folks got called in too, you know how that goes, right? Uh, and, um, and so myself and my co-chair, Rich McClure, uh, were asked uh, to co-chair this work. Rich uh, is a, a businessman. Uh, he at the time was the, um, was the president and CEO of Unigroup, United Van Lines, uh, and, um, and he had been the president of the local chamber, uh, or the chair of the board of the local chamber, the chair of a group called Civic Progress, uh, which is a collective of our 33 largest employers in the St. Louis metropolitan region. So highly esteemed businessman, um, driven by his faith, uh, evangelical Presbyterian, mm. uh, driven highly by his faith and very conserving Christian culture um, to this work to help people. Um, and then there was me. I knew Rich because we worked together uh, around some educational equity issues uh, in collaboratives. Um, so we weren't new to one another. And I think that's been, that was a key to the work. Uh, ultimately on the commission, there were 16 people chosen, uh, including us. So the two of us plus 14, uh, who were from throughout the community. Uh, so people uh, like Rasheen Aldrich, uh, who was one of the, um, um, who was one of the uh, young organizers and activists who was there, Show Me uh, 15 campaign, who showed up at the official commissioning uh, in a demilitarize the police t-shirt. Uh, that made the governor very comfortable. Um, 
Uh, you have me and Rich, you have my friend Tracy Blackman, another pastor within the United Church of Christ tradition, um, the le leader of Big Brothers Big Sisters, uh, our local Big Brothers Big Sisters affiliate, uh, a school superintendent, um, uh, a police two police officers actually mm -hmm. uh, on the commission and a former police chief uh, who was serving as the department, the head of the Department of Public Safety for the state. So a very uh, diverse group of folks. Uh, who were chosen, some residents of Ferguson, some not, most of us not, because we took a regional approach. We knew that we were not convening to resolve issues for 21,000 people in a municipality. Right. We were really convening uh, to address issues that were pervasive in this metropolitan area of 2.8 million people, mm -hmm. uh, and that this work had to be regionally, uh, it had to have regional impact before it could have national implications, right? Um, but we also knew we had to set the table in a certain way. And so I tell people, who else was at the table? I got in trouble for this, so I'm just coming clean. Because we're a state agency, we had all of the things that state agencies have to have. So we had the bid stuff, and we had to have, and that wasn't gonna work. That just, it wasn't gonna, certain stuff just wasn't gonna work. It militated against the process of actually doing work that could be trusted, and work that could get done well. So I tell people all the time, I'm full-throated about this. There's nothing significant I've ever done in my life without black women. Ever. Ever. And so there's a firm called Vector Communications that's led by a group of sisters who do community engagement, strategic planning. Uh, and the first thing I did was call Vector. I was like, I like you, Rich, but I ain't doing this without Vector. And so they helped us to set up the community planning process. Um, so our meetings were always organizing meetings. Uh, they were always to get community engagement and input. And ultimately that process that they helped to set in place for us um, led to uh, 3,000 people engaging in over 70 public meetings uh, and providing more than 30,000 volunteer hours to produce this document. Sharing their own testimony, so every meeting, after the first meeting. The first meeting we tried to be all official and stuff. You know, we had one of those tables that were all the black skirts and then the pop-up mics and and then we, got, we began with a briefing from the Attorney General's office about Sunshine Law. And we got about, we thought we should introduce ourselves to people, tell them our credentials, because they needed to get to know us and all this. About two and a half hours into that meeting, oh, it went down. <laughs> Sister came up to the mic, just started, no, we, we done with y'all, yeah, enough of y'all talking. It's time for us to talk. And she was right. She was absolutely and, right. And it went down. And so we changed everything from that moment. And so no more table. The tables were around, but our chairs came out in front of the tables. Uh, we began to sit with the community, particularly when there were presentations, so that uh, we were getting a pulse of what was going on. There was a lot of kneeling and negotiating. It's not in this deck, but there are pictures in the paper of me, like I'm pleading with people. And I'm just, I'm just talking to that dude. I mean, uh, but that kind of direct engagement became uh, our posture, and we reordered our meetings. They always started with public comment, real public comment that we actually responded to, not like when you go to you know school board meeting and you, know, you come up to the line, they tell you all they say is time, then you move on. Um, so I know they're organizers, and y'all know this, right? So we actually began to engage people, and we hear people's stories, uh, and that began to transform how we began to do the work. Um, so we heard people's stories, we heard from experts. Um, uh, so yeah, there are folks who had lots of knowledge in this area, we, we, we um, gave that, but we're very intentional to center the stories of people who are directly impacted, uh, to place that first in the work and to move from there. And so there was great diversity. The other thing we had to do was we had to move our meetings around. 
And so of all of our public meetings, uh, and of those 70, there were um, 21 that were full commission meetings. So there were also work group meetings. Um, we made sure that they went from St. Louis City to St. Charles, from North St. Louis to South St. Louis to West St. Louis, um, to all over the region to make sure we were getting perspective. And in some cases, we were agitating people in different areas. Um, so, you know, in the community in St. Charles where they thought they didn't have any problems, we made sure to take a meeting there and they came out and they showed all their wares and talked about how well they were doing and the county executive was happy to say that if St. Louis County just did stuff like we do it in St. Charles, then everything would be okay. And I was mm -hmm. very pleased to say, except for the fact that y'all have three police chiefs and none of them are here. So you were glad to roll out the Boys and Girls Club. Where's your police chief? Because you all have some of these same challenges and issues. You just haven't been under a DOJ investigation yet. And quite frankly, I think you all found out here and we found out in other communities across the country, all it takes is a reason for the investigation and we can find some of these same issues in any community. Uh, it was Tory uh, who I first heard use the words, uh, Ferguson is everywhere. It is. Uh, and so these same issues we find in other places. Absolutely. Sir, would, do you have a question or a comment? I'm a therapist and I teach uh, stress reduction at the VA hospital. Uh, in Hawaii, Japan, etc. I wanted to go to Ferguson because I know that there is an inner healing that needs to be done. In all these cities where there's violence, there is stress. This stress causes disruption in the body and it stays there for years until it's gotten rid of. Yeah. Uh, what's been done in the community for this kind of healing to take place, yeah. if anything? Yeah, great question, brother. I think I appreciate that, and and I would actually push further to suggest um, that you know we also have data now that suggests that it's transmitted from generation to generation, um, and so one of the things we were intentional to do um, uh, at the wisdom of one of our funding sources, and so one of the things we did, I should kind of close the loop on this. We told the governor, if you don't come up with a million dollars, we won't do it. That's what Rich and I said. I said, you come up with it from wherever you're gonna come up with it, but we need a million dollars just to do this work. We also knew that there were certain things that the state money couldn't pay for, so we um, uh, catalyzed about $300,000 in foundation funding to put with it. Uh, and uh, a good bit of that, those dollars came from health foundations. And so with an intention to apply health equity lens to the work, uh, we took data throughout all of our meetings on trauma. Um, because what we recognized just from a narrative sense, and I, I tell people this way, on August 9th, a whole lot of people saw something that nobody should ever see, uh, but I saw early in my life, um, which is a human body lying in a pool of blood, uh, open in the streets. Um, the first time I saw that, that was my brother, uh, who was killed uh, in street violence in the neighborhood. Um, but because of social media, a lot of us unfortunately saw Leslie McSpadden's son, Mike Brown Sr.'s son, lying in that way. And so our communities um, and that made it to people who were there and people who were not, like my son. And so at the time, I had a 10-year-old son, he's now 11, and because he rides in the car with dad and dad runs errands, um, one day I was coming back, picked him up from school, um, taking him and, and his brothers with me to pick up some cleaning, and I was listening to NPR and they were talking about the incident. And he said, Daddy, every time I hear about Michael Brown, my stomach starts to hurt. Right. 
And so we've all been traumatized by the realities of violence in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Um, and so part of what we sought to do was to name and to document that trauma by the people who came through our meetings, to represent that to community and to invite different kinds of responses. We're pleased to say a couple of things happened. First, uh, early on, um, the school districts um, that are in the area receive some support to work together uh, in a resilience initiative uh, to train uh, educators and administrators on how to respond to that trauma in their classes. Uh, that has led to a wider initiative by the Regional Health Commission and the Integrated Health Network, uh, whose CEO, um, we were able to negotiate her leaving um, her post for a year at the Integrated Health Network to be the managing director of the commission. So she came with this public health framework uh, already. Uh, and what they've done is led to an initiative called uh, Alive and Well in STL. That's all about trauma, trauma-informed communities, how we respond to this work uh, in school districts, on jobs, uh, and in different settings and community. And so this has been one of the more robust responses, quite frankly. Uh, and significant funding for that, uh, for the um, ongoing work in that initiative came from the Missouri Foundation for Health. Uh, so it's transformed how we think about uh, our reactions to these realities um, with this uh, focus on trauma and stress. So now you've got, you've got 16 people who are going around the greater, is it St. Louis County? St. Louis, St. Louis metropolitan area, so, yeah, so St. several St. Louis counties. metropolitan area. Um, how were you able to create some kind of, of shared language so that everybody understood what everyone else was talking about when they were talking together. How did you manage to do that? Because you know we all have different ideas about what individual words mean, individual you know uh, uh, statements or turns of phrase or what we mean when we say collective liberation, what we mean when we say racism, what we mean when we say privilege, all of these things. So how did you manage? within that group of 16 who come from all these disparate places to create some kind of shared language. Yeah, first it was very difficult. We actually couldn't do it in the group of 16 in the way we wanted to, so we had to do it with 2.8 million people. Because of Sunshine Law, and I say this because I think it, it militates against us getting good governance. Mm -hmm. And so because of Sunshine Law, we couldn't do what I would have done with my board, which is take everybody away for two or three days, bring in the best consultants who actually do diversity, equity, and inclusion work, level set, have people deal with their stuff, share some of their stuff with each other, or at least hold them in the container long enough that they get vulnerable to each other. Like We didn't get to do that. And some people met the morning of the, or the afternoon of the announcement of the commission. So I don't know you, I'm not gonna sit here and share all my stuff, talk about the other, so, so that kind of thing. And so we actually had to do it more intentionally. And I, why do I say that? I say that because we have school districts, we have city councils who are making difficult decisions like this, wrestling with the community's issues, and they have not taken the time to do this because of the constraints of how we structure some of our laws. I think it's really important uh, on how they do their work. The other is we just had to do it publicly and we had to do it plainly. So we were able to bring in some resources, had some folks to come in from the Kellogg Foundation, um, and center their work on America's healing, which again takes this kind of trauma approach, um, this public health approach, and to say, this is what this word means, right? 
When we say racism, this is what we mean. From here on out, this is what we mean. It would have been great to try to get consensus, but we just had to define it and say, when you say it here, this is what it means, right? When you say equity here, this is what it means. Um, and, and, to, and to be able to center, and that required, quite frankly, um, me, Rich, uh, as my co-chair, and Bethany, uh, our managing director, to be in consistent communication because we were making that decision, right? We, we just had to, we couldn't argue about everything and we were trying to bring people along uh, from different ideological perspectives and everything else. So we had to set the table with some, uh, some foundation and so we just made those decisions. We wrestled about that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we met every week, I told people, we met every week uh, for over a year at 7.30 in the morning, sometimes before coffee, so it wasn't cute. <laughs> but that was our commitment to continuous communication uh, so that we could guide and lead this group together, even though all three of us had our different stuff, different perspectives, different defaults, uh, and different reasons why we came to this work. Uh, and so part of what we had to do was in the public space and for the public, uh, make these definitions plain. Uh, that is work that's still ongoing. Uh, so we left, uh, we created uh, Forward Through Ferguson Incorporated, uh, a leave behind uh, small nonprofit catalyst group to do some of this education in community forums and throughout the St. Louis region. It's led by a pod of former staff from the commission, guided and governed by a group of five former commissioners so that there's continuity uh, and working with a local leadership group called Focus St. Louis uh, to help those who have in influence and access in our community to get to some of those same definitions. Uh, tell us a little bit about Focus St. Louis. Who are they? Um, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> I was, um, so Focus St. Louis is uh, um, a group that uh, over the years came from two different sources. One, kind of our Leadership St. Louis. Many communities have these leadership training programs. They expose you to different people throughout the community, different programs, different aspects and perspectives, uh, and different assets. Um, and then there was a group called Confluence St. Louis that was about community problem solving. Um, and over the years, the two groups merged, and so Focus's mission is really about, uh, quote unquote, leadership for a thriving region. It's about regional collaboration. It's about preparing leaders for the work uh, as they find themselves. I was formerly on the board uh, and served as board secretary of Focus St. Louis actually while this work was going on. Uh, I say it depends on who you ask, um, because there are some folks who say, you know, uh, Mayor James Knowles, uh, the mayor of Ferguson and the city manager of Ferguson was actually, they, they've been through Leadership St. Louis. Um, and, so, and so some people look and say, well, Fo Focus St. Louis are the ones who train all these people. Mm. Now they also train me. Um, so I don't know if that's good, bad, or ill, you know, good, bad, or ugly. Mm. Um, so it's a leadership training organization for the sake of community problem solving. Um, and uh, it becomes kind of a partner in community learning. Uh, on a regional basis. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think we have similarly situated organizations uh, in, in different Seattle. communities, and I imagine here in, in Seattle as well. How many people here have actually gone to some kind of leadership training? All right. So you can, you can imagine the diversity of folks who might go mm -hmm. through a similar leadership training. Absolutely. Uh, corporate folks, uh, civic leaders, elected officials, philanthropic people, mm -hmm. uh, but folks who are uh, oriented toward uh, some type of uh, uh, civic engagement, if not community change, right. okay. uh, and, uh, and aligned across ideological uh, spectrum. Uh, I'll just say one more thing about the previous question about um, 
about how to get to common definitions. It's very important for us to make data accessible to people. And so all of our meetings were transcribed and posted immediately at our previous website, stlpositivechange.org, which is still up. Um, so all of our public meetings, full commission meetings are fully transcribed. If you ever have a time uh, and you're having difficulty getting to sleep, there are 300 page transcripts <laughs> up. But also there were all of the reports that we got from any expert who presented. Mm -hmm. So all their PowerPoints, all their footnotes, all their reports, uh, so all that data is up on that site as well because we felt the community needed to learn with us. Mm -hmm. So all of those definitions were centered there as well. So we, were, we, took, we were arrogant enough to take the position we're defining for the whole region okay. based upon this data set. All in English? All in, all in English. Okay. And we have a, a question in the audience if you're ready. Um, well, I have a question for you. I'm going to poke the bear. Um, are you familiar with the term the Ferguson effect? <laughs> and do you want to address that? Um, I am familiar. Um, it has a couple of different definitions, though. So tell me which one you're talking about. Uh, well, the only thing I know about it is here and what I read from a Hillsdale College speech. Um, basically, it, uh, the person who's um, doing the stats says there is increase in black on black crime because basically police don't want to be seen as racist uh, and are not doing what they used to do, um, which apparently, to give it the best uh, way you could look at it, was to break up the uh, kind of areas where crime typically happened, which basically meant hassling black people. Yeah, so I'm glad I asked you to define because this has come to mean different things for different political reasons. So the first way I heard the Ferguson effect was that there was increased uh, militancy against police and police hatred in communities. And so people spoke to that as a reasoning as people did in the city of St. Louis uh, to make a request for $4 million more for the police department um, to get more money and more police uh, because of things like Ferguson. So they talked about spikes in crime um, uh, in the interest of uh, padding budgets. Um, um, I have to raise a little bit of attention to the, I have to say, uh, with anyone who uses the term, and I know you were reading from somewhere, so for the folks this wasn't her term, uh, black on black crime. Um, um, just because it's, it's, just, it's just not a thing. It's kind of like whiteness, it's a social construct for political reasons. Um, it's just not a thing. So there's no statistically significant difference between um, black on black crime, white on white crime, because crime happens within communities where people are together. And so um, that's kind of what it happens. But if I had to use this terminology or that definition, uh, what would be most appropriate is to talk about it as the Cincinnati effect. Um, and I say that kind of tying back to the police killing of Timothy Thomas. Um, in 2001 and the uprising that followed uh, because there we do have a 10-year study that suggests that once police were given accountability constraints uh, which they got uh, with the investment of resources uh, by the community in Cincinnati they decided they didn't want to stop people because they had to document how they were stopping people um, and so what you saw was that actual increase in crime in pockets and neighborhoods in Cincinnati, uh, and it was explained by the 10-year uh, report, some of the RAND data, so RAND Corporation did some assessment, uh, and then there was a 10-year uh, report uh, from the uh, Community Foundation there in Cincinnati that suggested that the attitudes toward accountability led police 
um, to stop doing their job. Um, now, that just tells me we got the wrong beliefs. Um, because, uh, you know, um, yeah, so, so I think that's, that's part of the challenge, um, this sense of uh, community accountability for people that we give unique license um, to, to work, uh, to kill with impunity, uh, and then, quite frankly, um, afford the same kind of privileges to the prosecutors um, who um, are called to bring these cases. Um, and we can't even, you know, we can't bring them on malpractice if they don't bring a case. Uh, because we've allowed that same kind of privilege uh, to that office. And so um, so I, I hear the term uh, Ferguson effect, Ferguson fatigue. There are also people who talk about the Ferguson effect as an establishment and a building of community organizations, uh, a re-radicalization of people, uh, and a renewed commitment to community organizing policy and advocacy work across the country and deeper investment in it. So I think uh, to your point about definitions, this is critically important as well. You, you have to define, you have to have a shared language. I mean, because it, it certainly sounds like two sides of the same yeah. coin. Yeah, if not three. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if not three. Yeah. Question? Yeah, um, running with the theme of definitions, would you be able to define racial equity and your dream for racial equity? Oh, I was saving that for later. No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, that's great. Uh, I think um, for us, it, it really is a commitment to get to root causes of injustice in community, particularly along the lines uh, of race. Uh, very specifically, it speaks to the identification of disparities uh, and with a commitment toward getting to equitable outcomes. Uh, or I shouldn't use word to define a word, uh, in, in, with a commitment to get to outcomes that are similar across uh, ethnic lines, there's a commitment to provide additional supports where you see those disparities, right? Uh, and so one of the things that we found uh, when we did our assessment in the report is that these demographic shifts just cause all kind of issues. So we saw what people see all over. So we saw a 53% increase in poverty in St. Louis County between 2000 and 2013. But that was mirroring the suburbanization of poverty that the Brookings exactly. Institute found across the country, right? Uh, but we also found that in 63106, uh, which is a neighborhood around my church, as a pastor church in North St. Louis, um, people literally lived 20 years, uh, 18 years, shorter lives than if they lived in 63105, which is the county seat in Clayton. Right? So there's generational difference. Uh, we can make that wider. If you live in predominantly white Wildwood in West County uh, in St. Louis uh, versus living in Kenlock, uh, predominantly black Kenlock, uh, which is one of the more vibrant black communities, robust merchandising sectors, if you go back two generations ago, if you live in Kenlock, you live two generations shorter life. Right? Uh, and it's all related to these social determinants of health. And so what does racial equity look like? Racial equity to me um, looks like people having a fair shot, a fair chance uh, to live a life that approximates people uh, who happen not to be twice kissed by God's son, right? Uh, who happen to be of a different, who happen to be of a different ethnic group. Uh, and so my hope is not, and I'm very intentional, I have to use I had, to, I, had to, I had to resist this word. So my buddy Rich and I, um, this, we had the most challenges over our common Christian theology. Oh, really? Because he kept wanting to use this term reconciliation. Mm. And, and my suggestion to him was, well, this is the deal, Rich. We, we can get to reconciliation. 
But before we get there, we got to walk this path. The path that we began uh, in the 1950s, 60s, talking about equality of access. Okay. Mm-hmm. Equality of access, you know. We're not going to restrict anybody from coming in here, right? Mm-hmm. And then we got to the wonderfully progressive conversation for the 1980s about diversity. The things you can see in a room or you can see on paper that suggest there were differences of perspective, right? And then in the 1990s, we began to have conversations about inclusion, right? Um, who's at the table and who actually gets some input on the menu, right? But equity suggests going beyond access, going beyond um, diversity, going beyond inclusion of voice to actually being thoughtful about outcomes. And my argument was rich was we can't have reconciliation until we have equity because reconciliation happens between equals. And so rather than calming people down with the images of us hugging or seeking to have conversations where people enlighten themselves, how about we push toward getting to the same outcomes among people groups? And once we get to those places, then maybe we can shake hands, hug, and be aight. And have reconciliation. Yeah. Absolutely. Great question. Thank you. Reverend Wilson, I haven't read the report. Thank but, you. <laughs> um, I saw Ferguson, a report from Occupied Territory. On, it's on YouTube. And I was stunned about these municipalities and the way that they ticket people for minor things and give them huge fines. And I was just so outraged that it seemed like they're balancing their books on the backs of black people. Um, are there recommendations in the report? Is anything getting done about that? Because I was just stunned. Yes and no. Um, so yes, there are recommendations in the report, and yes, there are some things getting done about that, but not happening at the scale that we asked for them to get done. Um, so a couple of things we call for, and we have, we have um, to credit uh, for the focus on municipal courts uh, and this issue of fragmentation, the Arch City Defenders a legal advocacy group working with homeless populations who had a well-timed white paper Mm. about the impact uh, of the court's fragmentation on their clients. And that paper was released in the context of all of this work and got picked up by the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And it began to kind of shudder a reaction by uh, our Missouri Supreme Court because they were embarrassed uh, at their colleagues because they have responsibility for supervising the court. So this is part of the challenge we have is structural. In our area, there are 81 courts on the supervision of one presiding judge. Uh, the closest we come throughout the state to that same kind of supervision uh, is in Kansas City where there's 22 courts. So you think 22, do you think 81, that's supervision that's not really supervision. Right, that's The impossible. challenge, of course, is that the courts are uniquely influenced by the local municipalities. And if you looked at the D- Department of Justice report, then you saw that there's documentation of actual calls from the city manager, who's the chief executive of the city, to the police department's chief, asking him to make sure they write more tickets because there's shortage in the budget, right? And so we know that this is happening. The courts are being used as an ATM for a system of fragmentation that has turned police into armed collection agents. 
and they're doing it in communities with this fragmentation, of course, you can drive three, there's a segment where you can drive three miles and go through 10 different municipalities. You get ticketed for the same thing 10 times. Okay. Um, and so what's being done about it? First, thankfully, there, being at, there are actions that are being brought by people like the Art City Defenders, the advancement project supporting some of this work um, to go in into small municipalities like Jennings to sue over these issues and then take, and they won some of these cases to transform courts, but then you got to take it from court to court and try to implement these same things or file again. So they're actually preparing another round of suits to do that. Um, the Missouri Supreme Court convened a working group to tell them what to do about this after we had already told them what to do about this? I got a call with the chief judge next week. Um, and the working group came back and told them that they didn't have the authority uh, to make these changes. Because one of the things we call for the consolidation of the courts. Um, they need to be made larger so that they can actually provide full access. Some of these courts, most of these courts are not full-time courts. Uh, I talked about the city attorney in Ferguson. It's very important to note that if you map all of these part-time courts with part-time judges and part-time attorneys, you get to 11 law firms who are contracted to provide services for these different municipalities, right? And so and you have to start mapping where'd you get some of these judges from. Um, and so um, we see some issues with the state Supreme Court um, not acting in their authority to consolidate courts. Uh, and so we're seeking to bring to bear additional influence there. We, we had a unique, um, uh, we, we presented myself and Tom Harvey from the Arch City Defenders presented to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Um, and we were presented on the same panel uh, with members of the Attorney General's, the U.S. Attorney General's Office with their kind of dear colleague letter providing guidance on how municipal courts should be working. Uh, so we continue to see uh, ongoing conversation about that. And now we're kind of agitating directly with the, the American and the National Bar Associations, National Prosecutors Associations. All of these groups somehow are coming to St. Louis to meet in the next couple of years. Um, and so some of this is direct advocacy with those organizations as well to get them to change the practice within the legal field to bring it to bear in the court. So we're trying to working inside outside on this. Well, we have another question. Um, I, I want to know, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I guess sort of to segue to the other angle of, of the whole issue, how, um, how the commission and also the um, intense um, response to Michael Brown sort of, if it changed uh, people's idea about what they wanted, how they wanted the police basically police system and police use of force to change or if it in just reinforced notions that were already there um, and what the sort of commission's um, particular stance on it is. Yeah, so thank you, great question. Uh, it's important to note a couple of things as we kind of get to timing. Um, in April of 2014, so before any of these incidents, the ACLU produced a report on the militarization and racialization of American policing. Uh, and it documented a lot of these issues of disproportionate contact by communities of color, um, that these were pre-Ferguson issues This kind of shined a light, right? Um, it's also the case that the November before, the Department of Justice began to study um, open an inquiry into the St. Louis Family Courts, which are our juvenile courts, um, that noted and documented the um, 
uh, noted racial discrimination against young people of color coming through the courts. Uh, and so this view of how the courts should work and how policing should work in communities um, have all worked together. Um, last thing I'll note is that a group called the Coalition Against Police Crimes and Repression had been working with the Organization for Black Struggle for 30 years to get civilian oversight of police in the city of St. Louis. And they won it in 2015 in the middle of all this, right? Um, and so I do believe that there has always been a community consensus around uh, increased accountability. We made recommendations in the report uh, for civilian oversight boards with, um, uh, with subpoena power and authority for the consolidation of police departments and for the certification of police departments. Uh, what we found is that a gross number of police departments are unaccredited or uncertified uh, by CALEA or any other national accrediting agency. And so one of the reasons why we did that was just to raise the standards. What kind of insurance do you have to carry? What kind of training do you have to carry? Um, because if you do that, you may actually force some, some consolidations of some of these police departments. And we have seen people working to be more creative about that. We were able to get uh, passed in one session, it was almost remarkable, a bill, um, uh, Senate Bill 5, uh, which called for increase, called for the certification of police departments. Uh, it increased the insurance requirements. Uh, it also uh, reduced, it placed a cap uh, on the amount of revenue that a municipality can get from minor traffic violations. Um, and so we were able to kind of push that down. There was a cap of 30% uh, for certain areas. It was clearly being it, it was clearly being outstripped. We found some of our municipalities that had as many as much as 60% of their budget uh, coming from minor traffic violations. So we had to push enforcement with the attorney general's office and the state auditor. Uh, we pushed that cap down. Uh, we passed these certification standards. And then the the Department of Safety in our state um, holds the accountability for police training requirements, which is different than the requirements for the departments. So this was under executive authority. So this is something we took right back to the governor and said, hey, you asked us to do this. This is something you can do like tomorrow. So by executive order, uh, we doubled, we call for tripling, but we doubled, uh, he agreed to doubling uh, the police training requirements for all police throughout the state in the areas of use of force, culturally competent policing, and, um, and officer wellness. Um, we had to use officer wellness as a way of getting at the trauma of the officers themselves, uh, primarily because collective bargaining agreements can't require um, uh, mental health screenings for police uh, except at certain points. Uh, and, so, um, and so these are things that we have seen uh, actually happening, some of the calls that we made about policing specifically and some of the changes that we've seen in the area. Good evening, my name is Ashley Young. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and my question is, what can we do as, individ in, as individuals and as a collective community to be proactive um, and try to build better systems in our community so when things like this happen, we're armed and ready um, to move or we can prevent them? You know, one thing that is really, you really need to read this report. Um, because not only does it have 189 recommendations, 189, it also points out the actors and the intersecting, you know, who is responsible for this? If this group and this agency, this institution, this particular uh, system 
all have to work together in order to make this happen, right? And I thought that was really uh, somewhat revolutionary because you know you, you see a lot of commission reports that just list a list of recommendations, but they don't necessarily point the finger at who needs to do this work. And I thought the, that the report uh, uh, was, was definitely incredible in the fact that you did that kind of work. Well, thank you. I mean, this is this gets to again using this public platform. So, I mean, as far as I was concerned, uh, we had a million dollars to organize people, uh, which you don't get a lot. Um, and so, part of what we sought to do is to invite people uh, into the public space. So, part of what I'm saying is what we needed to get this done was we actually needed people uh, working within neighborhoods, within community groups, um, within churches. Um, so. We were having this conversation with the with the Collective Impact Forum earlier today about a person in the role in a system, <laughs> right? And so we need people to identify and understand in the context of community, right, um, that they have certain values that they want um, to be expressed in their neighborhood, in their community, uh, and they show up in different spaces and places, right? And they show up as a father or a mother, they show up uh, as an executive from this company, or they show up as a pastor. And so we need those persons and roles to show up in settings to impact the systems, whether that's a school board meeting or whether that is um, um, a city council meeting. So I think part of it is we have to find ourselves in a community that can move together uh, in order to impact systems. And so I tell people, you know, your church, your synagogue, your mosque ought to be affiliated with some faith-based organizing engagement. And one of the specific calls we make on the racial equity is, you know, I was very clear that I wanted to do this. I called all clergy to engage in school board meetings, city council meetings. So you can't be where we, uh, the space that helps us to nurture our values and outsource responsibility for getting those values embedded in legislation and policy. Because legislation and policy is how we live out our values together. So I think um, whatever community you find yourself in, organize it. Uh, and then engage these systems uh, directly for the sake of holding them accountable. And so what we tried to create through the report was a map for accountability uh, that people could use in their communities and they could take. And, and we've done remarkable work. Our local Gamaliel affiliate, uh, which has a great diverse set of churches, uh, their community, faith-based community organizers, they got a diverse set of churches. They had little white women in West County protesting outside of their police department and taking the list of Ferguson Commission recommendations about policing to their chief, right? And so because they say this is not just over there where the black people are, this is, we want you to be held accountable to us too. And we didn't even know. We hadn't had this kind of incident, but we didn't know that mm -hmm. we didn't really have power over you. Mm -hmm. But we paying for you, so we want it, right? Uh, so that direct engagement, um, is part of what I think we're called to. I mean, I think it's the essence of citizenship. Exactly, exactly. We have a, 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 a local organizer here. Her name is um, Mary Flowers. And, uh, <laughs> is she and uh, Mary is, is, you know, as we are having our conversations and, you know, doing our organizing work, uh, Mary talks about two things, three things a lot. Number one, she talks about our humanity. She always asks us to look for our humanity in our organizing because then we can find and help other people find the humanity in what they do. She also talks about gatekeeping. You know, the fact that we have a duty 
you know, that gatekeeping isn't that necessarily thing that keeps the gate closed. It's also the thing that holds the gate open, right? And then she, she tells us, if you have a job, that's the people's job. And find a way within the work that you do, wherever you are, to do that work, if, you, if, if, it's, if it's racial equity in your nonprofit organization or your government office, whatever you can do, leverage it to make the kind of change that we want to see. And it's, it's been, a, and you know, a, when we ask each other, what can I do individually? You can start right with yourself and the job that you have. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What? Oh. Ten minutes. <laughs> um, it seems like you communicate a lot with political leadership and you're pushing them and making recommendations. What do communities need from local political leadership to, make sh to ensure a path to equality? Um, they need them to learn. Um, no, I mean, really, so racial equity is more than uh, a dream or a pipe dream even. It's a, you know, it requires skill sets, competencies, and capacities in leaders. And so they need to be trained um, to apply these lenses to their work. I'm really excited. Tomorrow will be the second open committee meeting. We, we ask for all settings of governance in the St. Louis region to apply a racial equity lens to their work. There's a resolution before the St. Louis um, Board of Aldermen. It's coming up tomorrow um, where they're dealing with what they need to do in order to apply this. And so people have to learn about this work. Uh, the other, quite frankly, is basic. Uh, it's built into this concept of representative democracy, uh, and that's accountability to the people. Um, a couple of the scenes you'll see up here, uh, you may have seen them already. Um, we knew, and we said this, we said, if the community is surprised by our recommendations, then we didn't do our work the right way. So in August, all the recommendations were public. They weren't cleaned up, but people knew what they were. They were out there. We just hadn't brought them together. We hadn't disaggregated all of the data. We hadn't, so, so we hadn't put the report together. The report was released on September 14th. But at the beginning of August, uh, when we knew that it was, we knew, when we had a sense of what the recommendations were, we started weekly convening at Deaconess Foundation an organizing table so that the organizing table prioritized the recommendations as aligned with their agenda already. So they had a subset of 30 things that were in the 189 that they wanted to get done. And when we handed the governor the report on September 14th, I announced, because they allowed me to, I announced a public accountability meeting on November 1st, where we called on elected officials to come and tell those organizers who had already prioritized the report for themselves what they were going to do in order to get this report done, right? And so this is the deal about accountability. There is an attorney general who we're much more friendly now than we were in the moment, um, who's running for, he's the chief law enforcement officer of the state, right. right? Let's talk about him that way. Who committed to this group of people to come to this meeting. This, people, this group turned out of, uh, 1,100 people for the first meeting. On Friday, the meeting was on Sunday, we had a weekend convening, organizing piece at our church, brought in other speakers from other communities because we're trying to assure accountability. We're organizing, that's what we talked about, organizing accountability. And on Friday, he had an aide to call me and say he wasn't coming. Now, when you said you was coming, I was talking to you. 
why you have an aide call me to you not? Mm-hmm. So we Twitter stormed him. <laughs> and he still didn't come. And then we found out when we began to scratch, there was the mayor who scared him off. Told him he shouldn't come to these meetings. He thought he was coming. And he was really giving himself cover because he had said he wasn't going to come. So neither of them came to the meeting. So in one of these, you see uh, a room full of people and four empty chairs. And we use that to agitate people. And the next day, we showed up in the mayor's office, unannounced, 12 of us. They shut down the office because they didn't know why we were there. And we let them know, you had a scheduling conflict, but we're concerned that you created a conflict for somebody else. And so this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna convene this meeting again. It's gonna happen before Thanksgiving. And we're gonna stay here until we have the date and the time from you, and then we're gonna take it to the Attorney General. So let us know how long it's gonna take you to get that date. Because an hour from now, the people who were with us yesterday are gonna be outside on City Hall steps. We're either gonna give them a date or we're gonna tell them how long we're gonna hang out at City Hall. And so we got a date and a time for them. And later in the slides, you see the mayor standing up, ticking off his accountabilities and the things that he had done and the thing that he was committing to do. He came with a pamphlet, it was all nicely made of all of the stuff that he was doing. And you also see the attorney general standing up behind him, committing to the things that he needed to do, especially if he thought he was gonna come ask some people to make him the governor. Right? And so part of what we need is the kind of responsiveness and accountability. And we shouldn't have to organize 1,500 people for that. We had to have a whole nother meeting. We turned out 400 people the next time. But we had to do that and we had to sit them in these rooms and put them on the spot. And that, quite frankly, that's their job anyway. You asked us for this job. And so part of what we need is education. The other thing we need is accountability. I'm sorry. Well, the governor set up the commission. Um, the attorney general and the mayor really didn't. The mayor was going to, the mayor was going to, um, but they didn't set it up to do what we did. Mm. They set it up to do what Lindsay Lupo wanted commissions to do. And we did something different, right? So that's, that's part of the reality. Um, and so part of what we began to do was, you talked about who's at the table. We took a table out to the front of city hall. <laughs> and we said, you invited us to come in out of the streets to the table. And we came to the table. 3,000 of us came to the table. We gave 30,000 volunteer hours at the table. We created this report at the table. And then when we brought the table for your accountability, you decided not to show up. So this is what we're gonna do. Until y'all start lining up an accountability, we're gonna carry this table right here around. And we're gonna take this table to City Hall, and we're gonna take this table to Jefferson City, we're gonna take this, we did, I mean this was, I gave this speech, I remember this table? speech, right? And so we took this table to all these places until they decided to show up as a well. A physical table. A physical table. We have, we have one last question from the audience. That's the table. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's right. <laughs> Perfect timing. My name is Shalee Seacrest. I'm with the Seattle King County NAACP. My question deals with um, how do you awaken a sleeping giant. Here in Seattle, in fact, many of the people in this room are the ones who brought in the Department of Justice against the Seattle Police Department where we have a consent decree. My question now for Ferguson is kind of in a situation where we are, is what happens when there is the 
separation from realities. The chief will go to the White House and take a photo with the president saying that police brutality, excessive force is a thing of a past in Seattle. Then the young people in this room who are still towing that line that you had said, they are the ones who, not for just 90 days, but year after year, are keeping it present. What are some of the tactics that Ferguson has done to make sure that whatever's in your report, that those solutions, you can circle back to those young people who are out there, that you can get a realistic answer on whether or not it's working. Because when we had to do it here in Seattle, before we were able to celebrate, those young people said, no, 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 there's still work to be done. So what are some of the things you guys are doing to make sure the solutions are okayed by the young people? Yeah, well, first of all, we didn't come up with them without them, right? So, so they were part of the, the solution engine, if you will, right? So, um, so we had uh, like one full commission meeting. We didn't let anybody, one person in. Um, we didn't let anybody over the age of 24 talk, right? So it was just their space, just their meeting, right? Um, and actually we had two like that. One that was oriented all around the arts. And so they used the arts to tell their story, performing arts, creative arts, and we brought in people just to help them to frame their vision for a community and craft it. And so the first is they should be fully involved and engaged in the process itself. Um, the youngest commissioner we had was 19 when he started, so Rasheen. Um, now, that's kind of, you know, the governor did that. It was representative more than anything else. He didn't know what he was getting with Rasheen, though, right? <laughs> like, Rasheen's running for committeeman now. Right, trying to oust a long-sitting African-American family dynasty in a district. Right, so so he didn't, he didn't know what he was getting. Um, so so part of that is staying in relationship and staying in contact uh, within those pods. One of the things that I didn't I didn't say I started saying this. One of the accountabilities to young people. I started I sold some of this with the Collective Impact Forum. I convened a meeting before I said yes to the governor. Uh, and I have representatives of Hands Up United, Organization for Black Struggle, Millennial Activists United, uh, all uh, at the parsonage of my church, and told them what I wasn't supposed to say publicly yet was that the governor asked me to do this. I had my friend Tracy Blackman to come in. She was another commissioner. My friend Brittany Packnett to come in. She was another um, uh, commissioner. And they asked, and we asked their permission to go do this work, right? Because we stood with them on the line, right? They allowed us in that space. We asked them permission. They said, you can do it if you're willing to walk away if it looks like they're taking advantage of us. Mm -hmm. And so the commitment we made to them before we made a commitment to the governor was that if this looked like a riot commission of the past, and if we were being used to trade on our communities, then not only would we walk away, we would walk away together and we would take two additional commissioners, Rasheen and the Director of Public Safety, the Chief Isom, with us. And so we later told the Chief about this agreement. We didn't know where he was at first. <laughs> he, was, he was working for the governor at the time, so we brought him in later once he wasn't working for the governor. So that was the deal. At any given time, it all breaks because of our commitment to those young people, right? Uh, and so that accountability um, is how we set the table in the first place. The feedback loops with them is that, you know, what we part, what part of what we've done, my own commitment, is to work to embed them. So I talked earlier, I used this term about moving from activists to organizers. 
Um, and so we invested uh, $100,000 in the youth organizing locally. Uh, we set up the Ferguson Youth Organizing Fund because there were funders across the country who wanted to help support the work. And so we've been able to leverage in about another half million dollars to invest in youth organizing and to point people to people um, so that people could go through uh, uh, organizing training with the Organization for Black Struggle uh, so that they could be on this work and embed it within organizations. This is the difficulty, is transitioning. That's what I said before. If we really want to do this, we got to do it within some kind of group, club, neighborhood, church, something for the sake of our own accountability. So we put those young people on a path. Um, we began to support their work in organizing and then got them engaged in groups like OBS and others uh, so that they would continue to do the work around accountability. And recall, we had already prioritized, prioritized the report with them. Um, so their agenda within the agenda was set. They are set with an institution that are organizing and advocating around these things on an ongoing basis. Uh, and now we provide funding and support for their work uh, on an ongoing basis as well. So I think that's how we've got to keep doing it. And that's outside of just being present and hanging, right? I mean, this is, we got to spend time and space with them um, so that we're held in that relational accountability as well. So. Reverend Wilson. Thank you so much. We love you. We're holding you in our hearts. And we appreciate this is for the people of Ferguson and St. Louis that we see you, we appreciate you, and we're holding you in our hearts. And we thank you for coming and sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Reverend Starsky Wilson spoke with Karen Turing of the Social Justice Fund Northwest at Seattle Public Library's Central Library on June 7th. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.